Welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Media and Marketing at Stylus. Today, we're talking about brand ambassadors in every shape and form. Is there still value in engaging with influencers? Are the days of celeb endorsements over? And perhaps most importantly, how do you turn your own employees into effective advocates? To help me answer these questions, I'm joined by Professor Jonathan Wilson, branding professor and consultant, and Julia Ahrens, Stylus's own senior editor of media and marketing. So first of all, let's tackle the always relevant question of just how valuable influencers are for a brand. I mean, I've heard convincing arguments from both sides. There's data saying that influencer marketing campaigns can earn $6.50 from every dollar spent, which is not to be sniffed at, obviously. But on the other hand, we've had recent debacles like uh, the Fire Festival, which have soured many on the idea of influencer marketing. So John, in this post-Fire Festival world that we now live in, um, what are your thoughts on the value of influencers to brands? I think that they are really important. Um, The interesting thing now is how people are classifying influencers. So if you look at various websites, they talk about mega influencers, macro influencers, micro and nano. I think influencers are important because people have always been moved, whether that's, you know, if you go all the way back into history, you think about Confucius, Jesus, you know, people like that, then, you know, people like the idea of following and following people who have something worthwhile to say and with a purpose. And I guess we're, we're just trying to do something like that. Um, the challenge is, who are those people? You know, are they celebrities, quote-unquote, people like film stars or elite athletes? Are they politicians? Are they academics? Or are they these people that have kind of been born in the YouTube generation where there was kind of a backlash of endorsement being worn out? So we knew that people weren't really behind the brand that they were endorsing. And so you had people who were selflessly posting these videos and telling people what they really thought. And lots of us tuned in and they became really successful. And then they evolved in a very Darwinian way up towards being effectively celebrities. So we're kind of, I think we're back at the same starting point, which is so who do we trust? You know, who who should we um, be influenced by? Yeah, I mean, this question of celebrity is quite interesting because obviously, as I said in the intro, uh, we're in a world where perhaps celebrity endorsements in the old traditional sense aren't any value anymore. Um, I think, Julia, one of the reasons why influence became so important was because there's this perception from Gen Z that um, the, the Instagram generation, the YouTube generation, they're seeking more authentic, transparent relationships, both with these people and with and with brands. So they're rejecting those sort of old school celeb endorsements. I mean, does that still hold true? Are celebs, um, old school celebrities, no longer of value? Yeah, I mean, that um, evolutionary scale that John just mentioned is really interesting. But if you look at celebrity in the sort of legacy system that we have, right? Yeah, they add reach and credibility to a brand. But a celebrity endorsement does not make an engagement strategy. Because essentially, legacy celebrities are there to be passively consumed by the audience. Now, if a brand can launch a campaign where you can sort of break down this hierarchy and actually make them more available to the audience, that's a different story. If you look at things like Doritos did a campaign in China where they engaged fans around a League of Legends, which is a very popular online multiplayer game, champion, his name is Faker, and gave them basically through a loyalty scheme access to a tournament where they could, in the end, earn the honour of playing against this celebrity esports athlete and that kind of strategy is interesting. But otherwise, because I mean, if you think back on the last 12 months, 
is there a celebrity campaign that's front of mind for you that's been massively successful? And I would bracket out Kaepernick because really the Kaepernick Nike campaign is more about what Kaepernick stands or actually kneels for and not about himself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point, this idea of um, interaction being necessary for, for influencers to to engage their their fans. I mean, I think you, you, you talk about esports, which I think is a really fascinating um, new phenomenon in terms of breaking down those hierarchies between fan, what we might call celebrity, um, where there's an ex- expectation that you are going to be on a similar level to these people that you are following um, on, on esports platforms like Twitch and so on. Uh, there's an interaction, a desire for agency from from the fans that you don't get with old school traditional celeb campaigns. So, yeah, I think it's I mean something we talk about on Stylus quite a lot this breakdown of hierarchies, um, which I think is quite scary for a lot of brands. It's about you know a much closer relationship with consumers. It's about giving some control to them, um, and as a result, I think we've seen a lot of ba- uh, brands, well, a few brands now take a big step back. I'm thinking specifically of Lush. Um, and Weatherspoons, who have both sort of rejected um, engaging with social media now because it's such a reputational minefield. I mean, what do you think about this? Is it a big mistake um, to sort of give up on social media, or is it a savvy move that enables them to put their resources elsewhere? What do you think, John? I think it's a big mistake, and I think it's it's that kind of... Because we're in this middle passage where people aren't sure how to win, then then they'd rather not do it. The impact as well will be felt by celebrities having to perform in a different way. I mean, I've got one example where I was watching a a BBC4 documentary on the bass guitar. I play the bass guitar. And so I commented on Twitter about, wow, this is a really cool uh, documentary. And I'd I'd done a vlog on on, on the bass and branding. And I tagged Bootsy Collins, who was in the documentary. And Bootsy Collins liked my tweet. And I thought, okay, was that an accident? And he liked another one. And I thought, wow. And, and, you know, that made kind of the proximity really, really close. And then when I looked, actually, I saw that he had an endorsement deal with Warwick Bass Guitars. So we used the same bass guitars. I thought, okay, yep, he's a really good endorser. And then I started following him on Twitter and Instagram and everything and seeing that he works really hard to get behind that brand. He plays the bass. He uh, likes people that play the same guitar as him, whether they're professionals or amateurs. And... I think that the bar is going to be raised for celebrities and influencers where it's like they're really going to have to work for their money. And that's also going to mean that they're going to have to be a lot more selective about the brands that they choose to work with. Uh, I remember, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, when he was at Manchester United, telling his players that they could only have a certain number of brands that they could enter a deal with because he didn't want them distracted. And I think that now this will be the situation where more companies will say, not just we go for the person with the biggest following who is most famous, but just, okay, how many brands are you currently endorsing and how much time can you spend doing these other things to actually demonstrate authenticity? And the next stage will be, and there's kind of a split, right? There's which celebrity are you? Are you the celebrity that's going to come down for the ivory tower and talk to people or are you going to have a distance? You know, if you're Jay-Z, then you probably don't talk to um, your, your fans. But then if you're... Rihanna or Taylor Swift or something, then you would, or Cardi B. And um, who was it who would, who paid off some student debt in about a 24-hour period? Yeah. Nicki Minaj. That's Nicki it. Minaj See, I'm showing my it. age. But I was on Twitter at the time. I was like, really? And I saw that the flurry of engagement where she was like, prove, you know, show me your grades and that you're in university and I will pay off your debt. And then she's like, okay, I've spent enough money now. But that's when social media comes alive. And that's the sort of engagement that we're looking at. It's not this kind of... 
make believe play, you know, playground type a- atmosphere that, that that brands have kind of relied upon with adverts. You know, if we think you know, years ago you'd have this scene and you'd set it up, and then you'd assume that consumers would just be beguiled by these these lovely pieces of creative, and that would make them buy. And I think that that's the challenge. It's not just the engagement or the influence, but it's how do you walk somebody's hand all the way to the checkout, whether that's online or in the store, and actually get them to do what you want them to do, which is to like your brand more or purchase your goods or services. So do you think for brands on social, it's much more about creating a considered and cohesive strategy on social? So not, you know, having five different schedule drops a day and there has to be a joke or a meme and it doesn't matter whether it's relevant right now. So rather scaling back and actually engaging in conversations instead of just pumping out content in the hopes that something will stick to the attention. Yeah. I mean, recently I was giving a um, a personal running workshop in, in Dubai and, and I said to the, the professionals there, I have this 40-hour-a-week rule, which is basically, you know, what I say to students is it's not just the, the, the students with the, with the highest grades that get the best jobs. When I look at people, when I used to work in advertising, I'd say, can I spend 40 hours a week with you? you're the person I'm going to give a job to. And I think that in social media, it's exactly the same. If you're somebody that, that you know, is attractive in the sense that your content is good and engaging, people don't care how many posts you you put up and they don't care what time of the day. And so I'm, I'm kind of against some of these tricks where they say 9am on a Tuesday morning or using Hootsuite or coordinating Merry Christmas in you know X number of months time and all those sorts of things. But actually getting on a platform in real time and engaging with people, and experimenting. What happens in companies when when everyone clocks off at six o'clock? Like, who's managing the social media account? Who's managing it when there's a, a Premier League football game and everyone's coming to life, and there are these kind of eclectic conversations? That becomes the challenge. That kind of means that you need to employ people on social media that almost are working in shifts, that, that really understand and are real companions to people. And that, when companies can do that, I think they'll get the most value out of it. Or have trust in hashtag challenges like people do on TikTok where you just hand your content over to the audience and see what happens when you get up in the morning. Yeah, which is always fun. We're going to take a quick break now for uh, a message about our upcoming Stylus event. If you're listening to this episode before the 6th of June and you happen to be in or around London then, our flagship innovation event, Decoded Future, will be returning to the capital on that date. This is your chance to see the most important consumer and cross-industry trends brought to life, alongside future-focused ideas, advice, and revelations from the creative industry's brightest minds. Get your tickets now at london.decodedfuture.live. Welcome back. So we've been talking about um, brands and influencers, but of course, uh, brands have influencers in-house too. Um, we're thinking about um, a, a report I wrote recently on Stylus about the power of in-house brand ambassadors. And that looked at examples like Macy's Style Crew. So with, with these guys, um, obviously Macy's employs a lot of people who have their own Instagram accounts. Um, and they were aware that, uh, you know, they have quite a lot of followers, some of these people. So they said to them, um, pick a pick a product from Macy's that we sell that you are passionate about and, you know, talk about it on your Instagram account. And if somebody buys that product as a result of what you're posting, we'll give you a cut of the sale. So they're incentivizing their their staff to talk about stuff that they would talk about anyway. So it's not kind of like scripted. Um, and they've, they've now come together as this kind of style crew, which I think is a really interesting um, idea. And it's done very well for, for Macy's um, in terms of sort of picking up on newer, younger audiences. 
Um, so if you get this right, it seems like a really powerful way to, to create effective advocates. So I guess my question is, why, why are more brands not embracing this sort of thing? Um, is, it, is it again about fear of losing control of the brand message? And is that the kind of wrong attitude to have? Yeah, I think it is about control. Um, the challenge is that, you know, if people come to work for your company, probably when they applied for the job, they said how influential they were and how much experience and how well connected they are. And that's what made them attractive. And now companies will check your LinkedIn profile, do some due diligence by going through Google and seeing what images they see of you and think, okay, great, you look like a good professional, so we'll hire you. But then the challenge is once somebody's working for you, how do you manage that? You, you know, how do you not become jealous, for example? You know, and by that, what I mean is that they are getting more attention than you think the brand is getting attention. And I've heard conversations like that from, from some colleagues where, you know, it starts off really well, but, but then if the company puts out a corporate tweet or a message and it just gets a handful of likes and then an individual does, then they think that, that the individual is benefiting more. And so it's, it's balancing that. And then that's not to mention the fact that, you know, you see now people are checking LinkedIn throughout the day and all sorts of social media accounts. How do you feel if, you know, one week your manager's encouraging you to, to raise the profile of the company, then the next week when there's a, you're not hitting targets or the, the department isn't, says, you know, you're spending too much time and I know where you are because I saw at what time you posted that post and, and kind of that there's a breakdown in trust. So I think on a basic level, companies incentivizing through discounts, commission and stuff, yeah, that's okay. But then a lot of people like to work for companies where they're not basically sales execs, right? And and so, you know, externally with influencers, I get it. Like you get me X number of um, likes, engagement, and, and, and I'll give you a kickback and I'll give you some commission. But for an employee, I think that you need to create a culture where people feel safe and confident that they can represent the brand. And so 20 years ago, they spoke about employer branding and just this idea that if we show you the staff that work in our company, a bit like the Halifax advert from, from years ago, then you will like our company because that signifies authenticity and trust and we care and we have values and we're showing that through our staff. I would say now that it's employee branding, which we're, what we're talking about, which is this idea that, that you have individuals who are almost behaving like brands and there's a co-creation element which is which is working with the organization and that's the bit that I don't think people have worked out too well but I have seen examples where it's where I was speaking to someone um, a friend of mine who works for Nestle in in Malaysia so they had something called a takeover week where um, she's in the comms department in Malaysia and they gave her the Instagram account for global uh, Nestle for one week Um, a bit of briefing as to what you can and can't say but basically show us Malaysia, show us your department, show us your personality. And she was picked for a reason that she, you know, she's um, affable, you know, charming, funny. And, and, and for that week, Nestle was able to kind of give over their identity. And I followed that and then I followed other people doing it. And I thought that works really, really well. I think that's a, a solution that's manageable for an organization rather than this big strategy where you say, okay, for the next three years, we've, this is our plan. But let's try it for a week and see what happens. And let's look at the engagement, the feedback, and then we can kind of experiment and make it up as we go along. Yeah, it's interesting that some of the the most interesting um, case studies that I looked at were, were from retail, where this seems to be much more about selling, um, as you said, than it is about sort of brand representation. I think retailers can do this in a much more effective way, especially if they have a lot of locations. I mean, there's an example of um, the vitamin shop in, in America, which has an Instagram account for every single one of its, I think, 500 stores. 
Um, of course, some of them have three followers, some of them have 200. But as you said earlier, you know, some of these smaller nano influencers do have impact. So, and for them, it's like it costs them nothing to set up an Instagram account for every store that they have. It's an interesting experiment. If it doesn't work, they'll try something else. Um, so I think, again, as you were saying earlier, this, this culture of experimentation is really important when we're talking about social media and influencers. Um, and I think that's important in-house too. I mean, this is something that we're seeing a lot, of, a lot of brands embracing now, trying to create kind of internal entrepreneurialism around these, these, uh, these issues as a way of fostering a more experimental company culture. So I always point to my favorite example, which is the uh, Adobe Kickbox, which uh, some companies now use where you get a prepaid credit card with $1,000 on it and they, and they say, go away and make something create a campaign, do whatever you want. Um, and if it's something that we like, we'll bring it in internally. And uh, lots of Adobe uh, features have been created this way by employees just going out and experimenting um, and actually you know, giving, them, giving them real cash to do some experimentation. So I'd like to see lots more of this going on. Um, do, you, do you see any of that? Have you seen good examples of that? And if not, what do you think are the roadblocks to, for, for that happening? I think the roadblocks are that that we don't look outside of our industries. I think that we we still got tunnel vision. So, when I've seen good solutions to some of these problems, it's been talking to, for example, journalists who on one le- on one side they have to produce content that comes out the same day, and and that's broadcast worthy content. It's not the sort of stuff that a lot of marketing departments take a month to produce. And then on the other side, if you look at people that, that produce dramas and documentaries, that they take a long period in time. And, and I used to work in magazine publishing. So I think that I, taking a publishing approach would be interesting to actually get people to draw up a features list and think about content that you could bring out over a 12-month period. And but, but just, for example, you could do a lot of vlogging in a weekend. You could do like five, six vlogs and then, and then space them out over six months. And and that way you could get more engagement from from your staff because then they could show you that. So even the, the small tweet, if, you, if I said, show me 20 tweets that are kind of humorous and we can work on that in the way that if you're a stand-up comedian, you'd come up with 20 jokes. Give me 20 jokes. Okay, and now let's try and space them out and then we'll, we'll, we'll intersperse them with some CSR uh, messages and things. But I haven't really seen many people take that kind of um, media approach. They use media but it's still very scattergun in that it's like, okay, now we have a campaign, let's go live. Yeah, I like that idea of um, kind of comedy writer's room approach to it. I mean, I remember reading about The Onion, for example, who, you know, throw a million headlines at the wall and, you know, if one makes a third of the room laugh, then that, that's that's the one that's going up. But, you know, they go through a lot of different iterations of things to find the right uh, combination of words. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be an interesting approach for brands. So... I guess the success of this kind of um, more experimental, more media approach um, is increasingly going to come down to recruitment for brands in terms of, you know, this next generational workforce, the Gen Zs who are coming into the workforce and obviously Gen Alpha even more so. um, They're steeped in social media and these concepts of self-branding and self-optimization. The lines between work and leisure are blurred for them. So, I mean, again, it comes back to this idea of control. As a brand recruiting, are you going to have to start accepting that work and advocacy and personal branding and brand ambassadorship, they're all kind of all one and the same thing now for the younger generation? Yeah. 
And I guess it's marrying big data and thick data, so that real qualitative approach. And it's getting different generations to work together because I would say, you know, being in my mid-40s, that I'm used to longer periods of time of doing monotonous activities or, or doing a lot more thorough research. And and I learned from from the alphas and the Gen Zs that that, that kind of immediacy, that 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 nudge to think, okay, I must talk about this immediately and straight away. But I think that we have to meet somewhere in between. So if you're recruiting people from those generations, perhaps they haven't thought about the implications of the fact that when you put out a comment, it's going to be there for decades, perhaps. Um, and so they should think more carefully. But then on the other side, that if you think too long, then you miss out on, on those key moments when things are happening. So I think that sometimes... Th- uh, there's a mistake where people think that real-time communication and dynamic communication in the moment is something which isn't strategic or or planned. So they just respond. But actually, if you do some scenario planning and then you think and you, and you take a longitudinal analysis and think, okay, well, we know, for example, that the Olympics are coming around again. We should start planning for the Olympics now. What happened last Olympics? Someone's going to win. Someone's going to lose. You know, so so what jokes would we have? What scenarios would we have? And have those ready in the same way as if you had a crisis management strategy. Now, this isn't a crisis, but but you need to be thinking several steps ahead so that you've got these things on your hard drive that you can then suddenly push into action. And I, I guess it would then be nurturing that talent from Generation Z where they understand that because, you know, we can see that there are no jobs for life and people are moving careers very quickly. And so there is a risk that if they don't understand that the long-term strategic benefit, then they might jump somewhere else where someone gives them more opportunity to co-create or or it, it seems to be more authentic or they have a higher purpose. I mean, all of the things that you've said in your reports and, you know, and some people dismissively talk about the snowflake generation. So it's how do you accept and manage those needs and then marry them with organizations that have been around for a long period of time? And that means that you need to save spaces where people from different ages are allowed to listen and to experiment and, and, and to share ideas. Great. Thanks very much. I think uh, one of the key takeaways from this discussion is that giving up control is almost inevitable for brands, but that is a good thing in the long term as consumers increasingly want more agency, more interactivity um, as a way of, of proving their influence um, so I'd like to thank my guests, um, Jonathan Wilson and Julia Ahrens. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 